Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Momentum Podcast, powered by Duckett Lab Dental CPAs and Advisors. Jared Duckett, back at you with another episode to help you get better. And guys, today, I am stoked if you're listening to this. This is the first episode in a six-part series we're going to do where we are going to geek out and get into the nitty-gritty, into the weeds on practice transitions, practice disposition, selling your dental practice, and what you need to know if you're listening out there right now and you're considering this in the process. What I want to do in this six-part series is really just, just let you guys know, you know, really what the options are out, you know, what the options out there are, what the process typically looks like, and that sort of thing, and what you can be doing today, even if you're five years out, what you can be doing today to set yourself up. So guys, there's no better person to kick us off in this six-part series than our friend, Dr. Jim Rocker. Jim, I appreciate you jumping on here, man. Well, thanks for having me, Jared. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is going to be fun, man. I mean, I, I geek out on this subject. There's a huge marketplace for this right now, as you see, as you've known. And uh, what we're going to do today with, uh, with Jim is really unpack your story, and then we're going to unpack your, your transition, because you have recently sold, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's do that, Jim. Let's, let's back up. Let's just start off at the beginning. Let's tell your story a little bit about getting into dentistry, growing your practice to where you were before you're sold. So get us there, and then let's start going from there. Okay. I, uh, so I'm from mid-Michigan. Uh, I grew up in a, in a town called Grand Blanc, Michigan, south of Flint, and my, my practice is in Fenton, Michigan. Uh, I graduated in 1990 from the University of Michigan. Uh, my mother was a dental hygienist. My father was a financial advisor for about 50 years. And he, back in the day, he was a CPA as well. He worked eight days a week. And I didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a CPA. So I decided to uh, go to dental school. I wanted to become a doctor of some sort, work with my hands. Um, and I went to Michigan State for my under, undergraduate. I was able to leave uh, there three in three years. I skipped a year and got into the University of Michigan a year early. Um, at the time was the number one dental school in the country, and I was the second or third youngest uh, student. So it was kind of a weird uh, deal, but it was kind of fun. And so um, when I got out of dental school, I ended up going back to my roots, um, and I, I worked for a little bit in my hometown, and then I found an, uh, a great place just south of that in Fenton, Michigan. Um, I looked at buying a couple practices, and my dad, as a CPA, helped me kind of um, read the numbers, see what was good, what wasn't good. And what I realized was um, a lot of them were overpriced. A lot of the numbers weren't correct. And I kind of got disenchanted with some of the people I was trying to buy from. Um, for instance, they might have two offices, and all the, and the one I was buying, the numbers were run through the other office or what have you. And so early on, I got to learn about the business of dentistry. And so I ended up uh, opening up from scratch in Fenton, Michigan, and I worked about an hour away in Saginaw, Michigan, until my Fenton practice uh, got up and running. So I kind of started one from scratch, which most people don't do. But after about four years, five years, praise God, I, I got all the credit here. Uh, we built it up to about, at the end, uh, about 5,000 active patients. And just an all, you know, a, a juggernaut that was consuming me. And it was to the point where I was working six days a week. I had associates. Um, and I realized very quickly that um, I was wealthy by my income, but I wasn't wealthy by what I owned. And I wasn't really free. 
It's when I joined Freedom Founders. I wasn't happy. Uh, my family was doing great, but I wasn't, you know? And so um, I decided it was time to, uh, I brought in uh, several associates. I think I had 12 associates, but nobody wanted to buy in. Wow. Yeah. Towards the end, I, I decided to take some advice from Dr. Phelps and some other people that said, hey, put an ad in that you want a, a buy-in offer and that's it. So I waited, found a, a great associate who was, uh, she was awesome. She's awesome now. Now, real quick, real quick there, yeah. Jim, how far along after you started your scratch practice is this, like considering having an associate buy-in? Uh, I mean, probably, so I've, I've been a dentist working in my practice for about 30 years, probably about 20 years in, I realized yeah. I was starting to burn out and I needed to bring in an associate so I could have a day off. Because what happens is, is you work real hard the week before vacation, you don't do any work vacation week, and you come back and you try to catch up. And I was just getting burned out as I got older. Um, and, and you get you get trouble. You hurt your shoulder, your neck, a bit carpal tunnel syndrome, ulnar surgery, all sorts of things where um, I knew it was time to find someone to, to, to buy in. And that process, I didn't know how to do that. I mean, I read books about it. Um, and so what I realized was I had to find that person who was serious to, uh, to buy in. Um, thought I found that person here at the end. So now it's about 30 years out and we're, I was working four days a week. Um, and I found an associate that wanted to buy in year goes by two year, two years go by and there's no offer and there's no, there's no deal. So I decided to start looking around, talk to Mike Abernathy, who was in, uh, instrumental in helping me find uh, an avenue in how to sell it. Also kind of talked me out of selling it to my associate because most young dentists have three, 400 grand worth of debt. They just can't get, uh, get financing. And then on top of that, they, they don't have the down payment. So that was the case for me. Um, and I didn't want to sell or finance any part of it. I didn't want to, you know, I just, I wanted to, you know, get out. Um, so real, real quick, Jim, are you, are you, was your practice getting too big to sell to another doctor? Is that what you're saying for them to have the ability to finance, bring cash to the table if yeah. they needed? It, it was too big to sell to another doctor. Yeah. The hard part was if I sold half of it I, and I still kind of wanted to work. So um, I quickly realized that if I sold half of it, I was behind the eight ball to sell the other half. Meaning yeah. if I sold the eight, if I sold half to the associate um, who was young, I'd still be running it basically. And I have to try to find the bookend to that deal. And I didn't want to be caught because then the leverage would be on the associate, not, not on me. Um, but that was what I thought was a good idea until I talked, I read some books, talked to, you know, to Mike Abernathy, David Phelps, and other people, and just got my trusted advisor group together. Um, and then from that point, I started to entertain some of the other offers out there. Now, granted, um, right when I sold, you know, last year, we were, you know, uh, the asset uh, price of practices was, was at an all-time high or starting to come down. Um, we were pretty popular at that point. Yeah. So I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but I want to, I want to get this key number if that's cool with you. And then we'll, we'll go forward here a little bit. Scratch start practice over 30 years ago, 30 years ago, Jim, what was roughly the startup cost on a scratch practice? If that makes sense. hundred thousand, it cost me a hundred thousand dollars, hundred grand all in all equipment, in. everything to get lights yeah. on. You start seeing patients. 
I had, yeah, I had two operatories, all used equipment, did all the painting myself, some of the, you know, plumbing, you know, back in the day, you did, you did everything. Um, and so I signed my life away for a hundred grand. My dad co-signed on it. And, um, and, and then I went and started to just buy it, you know, and at that point you start off with just customer service and, and top quality, um, um, you know, dental care. Yeah. So walk me through the thought process a little bit here. So you're, you're, you're getting burned out. You're working six days a week. You've got an associate there, but your practice is getting a little too big. I'm going to use that term for maybe them to buy in just because the amount of money, student loan debt, other debt they have and getting bank financing. Did you go find a broker to start getting your practice out there? How'd that look? Well, fortunately for me, I talked to, like I said, Mike Abernathy, a couple of the people, and they already knew of people okay. that I could, that I could uh, contact. So I, did, I could skip the broker part because I had a network of people that I trusted that had their feelers out into the dental world. Um, I called the first one because uh, I had heard some of the deals that they had had given out. The company was called Cherry Tree Dental. Um, and so I went down that road with them. Prior to, though, I would tell you when I realized that the associate might not work out, I spent a good year getting my financials in order. Um, I had had a couple offers from some other DSOs, which were about a half of what I ended up getting. And I noticed that even though EBITDA is EBITDA, I got four or five different EBITDAs that they figured out. And so I realized you can back engineer and make your numbers correct and make them favorable if you're smart. So I went ahead and got my financials in order. Now, real ahead. quick, hang tight yeah. there, Jim. Getting your financials in order, what do you mean by that? Do you mean getting your books and records accurate up to date or do you mean looking at your books and records and start making moves to decrease overhead, increase EBITDA, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Both, I'd say all the above. Number one, you know, seeing what I ran through the practice, try to make it cleaner. Um, also getting my, you know, P&Ls correct. I, my, I have a great CPA, my dad's firm is my CPA, so I have a lot of help there. Um, so kind of on both ends of that, uh, making it look attractive to a buyer. Um, I went ahead and got my lease I wrote, I rewrote my lease. So it was favorable to me. I rewrote the handbooks, all the employee contracts. So it was favorable to me. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously when COVID hit, I had that time to do all that. And it, it was favorable at that point, got rid of some of my, you know, um, or tried to get some of the, some of the financing down. Um, I got some newer, um, I did upgrade some of my equipment and also, added a room that I could use. So it'd make me a, an, an aid operatory, uh, uh, you know, business. Mm -hmm. And so what would I want as a buyer? I went ahead and figured out what I would have wanted. And, and I got most of that done. Yeah. That's, I use the analogy all the time. These guys, people are probably getting tired of hearing it of, of the car analogy, right? If you're going to sell your car, you're not going to just go say, Hey, I'm going to sell my car. And you put it in a driveway with the for sale sign. Because if it's my car, my wife's going to hear this and get, get on me. But if it's selling my car tomorrow, I know right now I've got French fries under the seat and I've got coins <laughs> underneath there too. And I've probably got a spilled milk bottle in there. And if I <laughs> sold that car tomorrow, I'm not going to get much money for it, right? Or I'm yeah. not going to get what I should get for it. So what you just said there, those things, you guys go rewind this real fast and listen to that. Jim is cleaning the car 
And he just said, well, I'm getting my finances and books and records in order. I'm getting my yeah. lease contract in order, systems and processes in order. The things, and you said it, Jim, the things that if Jim were the buyer, they would be looking for. That's gold, man. Absolute gold. Yeah. And I think the nugget there would be, I would have done that earlier. There's a book called uh, Built to Sell. You start a business ready to sell it, you know, so every day it's ready to go, but really it's, it's, it's sell ready because you're on top of everything. The other thing I'd say is when they, when the, the, when I was ready to sell, I knew how to do it. I, I had the owners come into, in, into my town. I brought them to the nicest restaurant, took them the nicest route, showed them the nicest neighborhoods and showed them what I thought would be, would put us uh, on the highest rung as looking good. Had them meet my staff, had the office cleaned. It had just been repainted, smelled like new paint, all of that should be uh in your in your head before you go ahead and put your your best foot forward so i would recommend all of that as well so walk us through when you're talking to this prospective buyer right you, you sought them out you started talking to him what are you what's that process look like what are they asking how's that work and then you as the seller because you want to sell to somebody you trust and i mean that's your baby right you built this thing 30 years ago what yeah. are they asking you? And then what's going through your head and what are you looking for them from them? Luck, fortunately, I was at a time when, when there was a little bit more of a, of a negotiation. Um, I wanted to keep working two to three days a week. Uh, I wanted to own my building and have them lease it. Um, I wanted to uh, not change what I was doing as far as a dentist. And I did not want a, an, an earn out of any, of any substance. Uh, because I know the minute you sign a contract, it's it's flipped. And so I had my counter offer and what I, I had my my list of things I, I wanted and would and would settle for. Yeah. Um, and and that was a little bit and, and I kind of knew a little bit about the company ahead of time. And I talked to a dentist who had already sold to them. So I kind of knew the ballpark or where I could counter offer. Um, what I bugs me about dentists is they just take the offer given them counter offer. Please counter offer um, and give an offer back to what you can live with. Um, you don't have to sell, you know, you can bring in another associate if you want. So you don't have to sell unless the deal is golden. So, like I said, I had, I have an earn out of a hundred. I got all my cash up front. I have to give 180 day notice. If I want to leave, I had zero earn out. They leased the building. I'm going to stop you right there, Jim earnout people listening might not know what that means elaborate on earnout and how that yeah. works in a, in a dso sale let's say a lot of dso's you need to read the fine print you know the heartlands out there other ones have some fine print have a legitimate lawyer dental lawyer look at it because an earnout would be something like we'll give you 80 percent of your of your money we'll give you 60 percent of your money and then in five years we'll give you the other portion of that it's not really your money at that point. And they might have some stipulation in there, some numbers you have to meet, some target productions you have to meet. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to um, have that onus on me. So the earnout would be you get some of your money, you retain some ownership possibly. Um, but you know, and it's kind of a it's kind of a game between who's gonna who's gonna log more of that on their shoulders. Um, I just knew. I didn't want to do that. And I, I had a buyer or two. Um, and then I negotiated ab above and beyond what I thought I could get. And I ended up getting it. I got another, 
um, I would say another million more than, than it was worth based on the fact that um, everything was in order and it, it was a kind of a no brainer for the, for the person buying it. Um, but, but like I said, I wanted to own my building. I wanted, I wanted to have, uh, have a lease uh, that it was favorable, which I've, I had already in, in place, no earnout or very minimal year, maybe at the most, um, all my money up front. I uh, wanted to keep my same work hours. My name is still on the sign out front. Nobody really knows I sold it other than my staff. And um, I didn't want to have any kind of lab constraints and all that kind of stuff that um, they can, you know, nickel and dime you. I, I, and then I counter offered and, and they took it. So. So it sounds like you went in with your non-negotiables to a degree and got almost all of it, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And you don't have to speak specific numbers by any means really but you said you got a million more so a million more than you would if you would have sold to an associate is that what you're saying or another doctor yeah i would say if if people say 80 percent of your last year's collections is normal um and people will say last year's production i mean who knows or you, you can use the ebitda number um they'll they'll just find whatever number is lowest you know so i just kind of you know, I kind of back engineer what I wanted. I got about a million more of 80% of our last year's collections. Yeah. Um, and that was way better than I thought I would have done. And, and I know uh, with my network, I know what to do with that. So I, I immediately had a way to invest that. So, yeah. So talk through a little bit pre-sale, post-sale, because you, see, you hear a lot with the, with the DSO, right, that you sell to and you stay on. They take a lot of that administrative and stuff off of you. Um, what, what, what do you, you still work there, right? You, you still, you yep. said you're staying on 180 days notice, whatever. What does your life look like? Your work life look like post? Can you tell a difference, big difference? Or yeah, I would say initially it's a shock to the staff and how I did it was, it was a quick sale. It was talked to in November, sold it by the, the 31st of uh, this past year. And we had like a meeting with my leadership team. I had a meeting with the associate, I had a meeting with my leadership team, meeting with my whole staff. And the next day they came in and, and they told the staff that, that they bought it. So a lot of shock, a little bit of a, you know, I wouldn't say everybody was happy with me, but they all knew that I was trying to sell it. And um, it just was, it'll life change some of the staff. So I'd be ready for that. Um, haven't lost any staff that we wouldn't have lost anyway. Um, and then, you know, for me, it's been great. I don't do, I, I, I can, I can finish my last procedure and walk out the back door and drive home. And um, other than being the, the landlord on a triple net lease, which I don't do anything anyway, um, you know, this, it's been awesome. And, and i tell you one more thing. After COVID, we were collecting not as well as we used to, especially now the collection rates are down. Um, I... I'm getting paid 36% of what I collect. That might even be better than I was doing prior to. And then we also on a sale bumped up the goodwill in our favor to 85%. So you don't see that too much. So I feel like I'm doing as good or better than I was prior to, but I have my, I have my cash out of a, out of a business. I believe in the next several years, it's going to, is going to decrease in value. Hmm. Um, so that's that's key. Talk a little bit. You briefly mentioned it, and I've had this question a lot too. Because you you had an associate in place, still do. I think is what you said. Yep. What was the associate's reaction when you sat down and, and told them the plan? How, how did that go? 
Well, it, it, at first it was, it, it was a better deal. I thought for her anyway, um, truthfully, she already had 400 grand worth of a debt plus a mortgage. And she was going to buy a practice for a few million dollars and had to come up with another um, down payment. I mean, uh, you know, 20, 20% of that, there's just no way it was going to be good for her. My people, like my guy, Anthony, figured, figured it out. It only work is if I wasn't working here and I wanted to continue working. So the numbers wouldn't have worked. Most people don't know that coming out of, out of dental school, don't have the business acumen to do the, that math. So at first she was happy. Then she was a little bit not, not happy um, because she was close to ownership. Now, granted, two years had gone by and nothing happened until I pushed it again and pushed it again. So um, I probably would have continued down that route if, if that was my only option. Um, but as I think back, it would have been a bad option because I still would have been doing all the work, all the management, and I wouldn't have had half, you know, hardly any of any of my uh, cash up front. And I really think I saved her having a, a giant onus on her shoulders um, as well. So the benefits are better for her now. There's better, uh, you know, there's better retirement uh, insurance, health insurance, et cetera. Um, but at that point, people assume everybody is equal, which they probably are. In Michigan, where I am, this D DSO does not have a dentist. So technically I'm there, I'm the, I'm the dentist that owns the, the three practices they own here because they don't have one yet. So I still have a little bit of, of a leverage there as well. Yeah. Hit on Jim, just a little bit, the culture, because you hear a lot and it, it's not all the case, right? But you hear a lot. Okay. You sell to a DSO. They're going to come in. It's going to mess all your culture up, right? You, you built something, your culture's in place and they're just going to kind of mess it up. Yeah. Is that the, are you seeing that? I, mean, I would say in my practice, it has a little bit only because we ran strict traction. We yeah. had a leadership team. We met once a week. We got things done. We had a, a robust incentivized program of profit sharing that was gone. So they're making less money. Um, they don't, they don't require them to meet like we met. So people are going a little bit rogue. I think there's a little bit more drama now because we're not meeting it once a week, maybe a little bit more gossip. Um, and, and the figureheads aren't, aren't, um, on site. So it's virtual. And so I feel like, um, I felt a little bit sad because what I had built up culture wise, um, isn't what it used to be, but, um, I feel like at some point that had to happen. I think the DSOs can come in, look at the numbers and make the hard cuts that I probably wouldn't have done yeah. with staff that I've had here for 20, 20 years. Um, and they made some hard cuts and it wasn't on me per se. It was on the DSO um, and the, the cuts they made, I probably should have made, uh, but probably resisted due to the fact that I didn't want to lose staff and have the pain of finding more people. I'd rather have the owners of paying a little bit more for staff as opposed to the constant, you know, turn, you know, uh, turnstile of, of employees and training and all that. So, yeah. Any, you don't have to answer this if you don't want, or if you don't have any, any, any mistakes you made during the process or any, anything looking back now, you're like, man, wish I would have done that. I've got 9 million of them, but. Oh, I always had mistakes. I would say um, the one mistake I think, but I think it maybe worked out 
you know, Lord willing this way anyway, was that it had to go so quick because I wanted it done before the first of the year for tax purposes. So um, it was done and sold in like two weeks. Um, and then the paperwork finished up at the end of the year. But um, I probably would have would have spent more time with the changeover, but they like they wanted to make it quick, you know, put, put, put. I probably wouldn't have done that again. I would have taken a whole month and, and talked about it. And, um, and even though they knew I was looking for somebody, it's different when it actually happens, you know. And so uh, I probably would have done that differently. Um, other than that, I really can't say I would have done anything else differently other than uh, and then maybe slowing down the process. But maybe it was better that way. Yeah, that's, you're exactly right. Two weeks is lickety split. I mean, I would say most of the deals, curious what you see, but most of the deals I see maybe 60, 90 days after letter of intent is executed. So two weeks is getting with it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, we finalized the, the terms in the last week of November. The first week of December, I talked to my associate and then my, my team and then my whole team. And then they came in the next week. And then the paperwork was finalized, you know, uh, in a nutshell with my attorney, Dr. Larry Pino, by December 31st. So there was a little bit of some due diligence that the attorneys had to do and, and what have you. But for all intent and purposes, it was, it was, it was done very quickly. Yeah. What's... Um... So life now, it's just great, right? Just kick back in the library behind you there, reading books and, and doing dentistry four days yeah. a week. Is that where you're at? Yeah, I'm actually doing dentistry two or three days a week. Um, sure. It just depends on the week, travel a lot. I'm a guy that has a lot going on. I'm writing a couple books. I have a, 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 a mentorship program called Smile Mentorship Institute. It's .com. I talk to, uh, going to talk to young dentists and give them some um just some avenues, some business acumen, some things to think about. Um, I go into those and they don't have any business classes, so they have no clue. I was a, also an a, um, econ major. Um, oh, I just got my insurance license, um, looking at maybe getting my, my um, MBA here. Um, so I'm just, I'm always moving. Um, I have seven kids, so we always got stuff going on. My wife and I do a lot of mission work. In fact, I'll be in Guatemala in a couple of days. We have a feeding center and some orphanage uh, in a school. Um, I, I have two daughters from Guatemala that we adopted. So, and that's called transformingfutures.org. And uh, that's probably where I am most um, passionate and happy about where I spend my, my you know, my time. Um, and then, as you know, I'm a big into the family office and legacy uh, with family. And as I know, I think you guys always mentioned, um, Every business is a family business, right out of the E-Myth book. That's so true. So we we run a family office where we, my sons and I and my, my girls, we invest together and we uh, JV to learn and to grow their, their, their business savvy on how to do real estate. Yeah, that is awesome. I'm going to put some of that stuff in the show notes, that Smile Mentorship Institute. Go check that out. That is awesome stuff. And then the transforming.org. I didn't know about that. That's awesome. Yeah, trans, well. It's transformingfutures.org. It's Futures. a charitable foundation that we started with uh, three other people that we have a feeding center in Guatemala feeds about 800 kids a day, school and other things. And it's, it's just a charity um, that I'm going to go check on here in a couple of days. But that's just, you know, that's the things you can do. 
um, when you have financial freedom, you can look over the mountain and figure out what your next is. And I, I talked to Dennis and I, they're just like, they're so tired. They're not happy. They're beaten down. I often say, I ask a dentist, Hey, you know, how long have you been a dentist? And it acts like they're, they're coming out of the state penitentiary. Like, I don't know. I've been in there for 25 years or <laughs> I've been in jail for 30 years. They never, never like they're happy. They're never happy. And it's because this dentistry job is, is a tough job. Um, and I mean, even people come out of dental school, they're tired and their, and their neck hurts and they, but, but they have debt, you know, so it's terrible. Yeah, that is awesome. That is totally awesome. And you've, you've literally lived the American dream. I want to circle back and I'm going to end this thing, but I want to circle back scratch, scratch, start practice 30 plus years ago, let's say 30 years ago, hundred thousand dollar investment. I think you've gotten some good ROI on that investment, right? Yeah, that that's is dynamite. a miracle. That's a miracle from God because we were we ended up getting like 200 patients a month, and you know that's that was a miracle. I I take zero credit, but that's how it worked. You, I had to be top notch. I had to be happy. I had to. It's cost. It's what people should, should do now. It's customer service, painless dentistry, and stand behind your work. I like I was telling someone the other day. I wish you, you know. And dentists hate this, but I hate the fact that they you deem a successful dental a successful dental practice by how much money you make. That's not really accurate. Some of the worst dentists make the most money. They do the same tooth eight times in a person's lifetime. Yeah. The best dentists are the ones who do the least amount of redos of their own work. And I wish we could track that. We tracked that in my office, and that was the that was the practice builder. Is people talk in a small town? I know everybody because our stuff held up. Um, if you're a cardiologist, they, they see how many people died. If you're a dentist, they ask you how much money you made. Has nothing to do, it isn't commensurate with the dental treatment. Most dentists hate that I say that, but I'm telling you after about five years, you realize if you're a good dentist or a bad dentist and um, you need to stick to finding every day what works best on the dentistry side. Be honest, the rest of the stuff will, will come after that. No. That's dynamite, man. All right, Jim, let's end on one question here. People out there listening right now, dental practice owners thinking about selling wherever. You said build a sell. You could have just bought your practice. You need to always start thinking about selling. What's your one piece of advice you'd give somebody out there right now thinking about selling? I would say I would look at your numbers, get them in, get them in order, um, make yourself look attractive, uh, find out what you want. Do you really want to sell or do you want to maybe bring in associates and still be an owner? Um, really take a good look at what you need, what your family needs. Don't just sell because you're in pain. You don't like it. There's always somebody out there that can take over your job. You don't need to do it. So I would do, I check financials. I check yourself. Um, and I would also, um, you know, find out what your passion is, you know, and, and only do that dental work. Um, some people aren't ready to sell. They think they want to, but they can't. Um, how can you change what you're doing in your practice to make it palatable to you? Um, that's probably what I'd say. That's good. I mean, as you can tell, Dr. Rocker just sold his practice a year ago, but he's not stopping working. He's only getting started everything he's doing right now. So Jim, appreciate it. If you guys are listening out there, like I say all the time, a lot of people out there are thinking about selling to a DSO or selling to a doctor or whatever. Go share this episode. Do the double S, double R, share it subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating, give a review. 
but somebody out there wants to hear Jim's story. And guys, connect with Jim. I mean, he's doing awesome stuff. We're going to put this stuff in the show notes, but connect with this guy. He's living proof of how to do things and also leaving your legacy after you've sold and what he's doing now. So dynamite first episode of the series, Jim, Dr. Rock, appreciate it, man. Definitely coming on here. Wealth and knowledge. Thanks, Jared. And, and thanks for all your help and advice. I appreciate you, sir. Definitely. We'll talk soon. We'll see you guys.